The views expressed in this program are those of the participants. I see this terrible thing in your eyes, Jura Ben-Hur, but no matter what this man has done to you, you have no right to take his life. He will be punished inevitably. I don't believe in miracles. But all life is a miracle. Why will you not accept God's judgment? You do not believe in miracles. Yet God once spoke to me out of the darkness, and a star led me to a village called Bethlehem, where I found a newborn child in a manger. And God lived in this child. By now he is a grown man and must be ready to begin his work. And that is why I have returned here, so that I may be at hand when he comes among us. He is near. He saw the sunset this evening, as we did. Perhaps he's standing in a doorway somewhere or on a hilltop. Perhaps he is a shepherd, a merchant, a fisherman. But he lives, and all our lives from now on will carry his mark. There are many paths to God, my son. I hope yours will not be too difficult. Welcome, everyone. It is Thursday, August 23rd, 2018. I'm Bob Metz, and this is Just Right, broadcasting around the world and online. Join us for an hour of discussion. It's not right wing. It's Just Right. Fade into color, color into black and white. Under the bedclothes, everything will be alright. Today, I plan to share with you some very struggling perspectives on God, morality, existence, religious belief, atheism, faith, reason, life, death, totalitarianism, freedom, and all of those big picture philosophical portraits of reality itself. I listened to two very intelligent people struggle with these very issues recently, and for me it was a very frustrating experience. Not so much a personal frustration, but a sense of frustration on behalf of the participants in the debate, who happened to be Jordan Peterson and Sam Harris. At issue was, as Peterson put it, the desire to, quote, ground a structure of ethics into something solid, end quote. It's a noble objective and one that we share, and we'll be sharing that with you right after encouraging you to write us at feedback at justrightmedia.org. Subscribe to Just Right on iTunes and follow us on SoundCloud. Hear us on WBCQ and on Channel 292 Shortwave. Visit us at www.justrightmedia.org where you can access all of Just Right's social media links and, of course, all of our past broadcasts. Now, this past weekend, Robert Vaughn sent me a quote-unquote unlisted link to an August 7th YouTube posting of a debate that took place on June 23rd in Vancouver, British Columbia, featuring Jordan Peterson in conversation with Sam Harris and hosted by Brett Weinstein, who only briefly participated in the discussion. While Peterson and Harris agree on many issues... There is an elephant in the room, and a very much unresolved issue, and in a word, it is God. Long-time listeners to this show already know my own views on matters of God and deity, and you'll hear some of them again today, but not until after 
we've all had a chance to listen into those edited parts of the June 23rd discussion that dealt strictly with this axiomatic dilemma. Now, for those not entirely familiar with the participants in the debate, a quick description of each as found on Wikipedia describes them as follows. Now, host of the debate was Brett Weinstein, who is an American biologist and evolutionary theorist. Weinstein is a critic of capitalism, who has stated that although markets are very efficient at informing consumers of how something should be done in the world, consumers must not rely on markets to tell them what should be done about the world's problems. End quote. Now, I would agree that markets are not a solution to all of the world's problems, but I'm an advocate of capitalism, not a critic. Sam Harris, of course, and again, as described by Wikipedia, is an American author, philosopher, neuroscientist, critic of religion, a blogger, public intellectual, and podcast host. His work touches on a wide range of topics, including rationality, ethics, free will, neuroscience, meditation, philosophy of mind, politics, Islamism, terrorism, and artificial intelligence. He is described as one of the four horsemen of atheism, together with Richard Dawkins, Christopher Hitchens, and Daniel Dennett. And, of course, Jordan Peterson. Jordan Peterson is a Canadian clinical psychologist and a professor of psychology at the University of Toronto. His main areas of study are in abnormal social and personality psychology, with a particular interest in the psychology of religious and ideological belief and the assessment and improvement of personality and performance. Peterson's first book, Maps of Meaning, The Architecture of Belief, published in 1999, examined several academic fields to describe the structure of systems of beliefs and myths, their role in the regulation of emotion, creation of meaning, and motivation for genocide. Pretty heavy stuff. Now, I, I, I cite these brief partial descriptions of each of the participants only because it helps to define, you know, where they're coming from in the sense of the backgrounds that led them to the points of view that you'll be hearing today. Though they all assure each other that in some way they share a common goal or objective, their differing means to that common end often places that assumption in jeopardy, and I'll leave that one with you after you hear what they have to say today. Since most of my own commentary on this subject will be in the form of, I guess, my reaction to the issues raised by Peterson and Harris, I thought we should go into the first part of their discussion right away. I thought what I might do is just lay out some places that I think Sam and I agree. And because there's lots of places we agree. And so, and then I want to figure out where we disagree, which I've been trying to sort out. And then I want to see if we can hash it out a little bit and, and move forward on that a bit. So the first thing is, I think, I think that partly what's driving you, if, if, if this is accurate, is that you want to ground a structure of ethics in something solid. And, and, and there's, two, there's two things you want to avoid, two catastrophes, let's say. One is the catastrophe that you identified with re religious fundamentalism, and the other is the catastrophe that's associated with moral relativism. Is that, is that reasonable? Yeah, that's good. Okay, good, good. That's your first priority. And then maybe your second priority is something like, you know, you see undue suffering in the world, plenty of it, and you would 
think that things would be better if that wasn't the case, and that this morality, whatever it's going to be, is at least going to par ground itself in part on the presupposition that the less undue suffering in the world, the better. Is that, is that also reasonable? Yeah, I would just add to that the, the positive side of the continuum as well. So when I, as you know, the phrase I use, or the, the word I use for this is well-being. Yep. You know, it's, it's, it's an elastic suitcase term for a reason, and it's, for me, well-being is simply just the positive side of being. You know, there's, there's the negative side, the suffering yeah. we want to mitigate. But I think, I think, however good consciousness can be in this universe, that the, the, the well-being for me subsumes all of those possibilities. Okay. okay. Yeah. Well, so I so I focused on the suffering element. I think, as I've done in my own work, because I actually think it's easier to zero in on in some sense. Like I think it's easier for people, and I think you lay out the argument in the moral landscape kind of like this. I think it's easier, perhaps, to gain initial agreement between people on what might constitute a generalized ethic to concentrate on what we don't want. Yeah. I'm not saying that what we do want is unimportant, but it seems to me to be harder to get a grip on. We don't want Auschwitz. We don't yeah. want the Gulag Archipelago. So, and, and there are... And, and, those, and I would add to just closing the door to moral relativism here, those who do want Auschwitz are wrong to want Auschwitz. I mean, it's, obviously, right. Auschwitz only happened because some people did want Auschwitz not the victim side, but the perpetrator side. And so, the, the, crucially for me is the claim that, that I'm a realist, I'm a moral realist, and what, what realism means is that, it's, that, are, that there are right and wrong answers yes. to questions of this kind, and, and, and you can not know what you're missing. In fact, we almost certainly don't know what we're missing on questions of human value, and, that, and our job is to discover just how good life can be and just what variables are making it needlessly horrible and to, to mitigate all of that and live in a, in a better and better world. Okay, well, so, okay, so. Okay, so, so that's, a, that's, a, that's a lot of points of agreement. So I also believe that there is a catastrophe of, of arbitrary moral injunction and that there's a catastrophe of moral relativism and that, that that has to be dealt with and that there are genuine differences between the proper way of behaving morally and, and, and the improper way of behaving morally. And I think that they are grounded in hu human universals even though there's a wide amount of variation. So that, that's a lot of points of agreement, right? So we, we know that there's two things we want to avoid. We, conceptually speaking, which is the moral relativism and, and this kind of moral absolutism that's grounded in, in, in an arbitrary statement of facts that you identify with religious fundamentalism. I would identify that with funda fundamentalism more generally, not, not with religious fundamentalism yeah. per se, because I see it also happening, happening in secular states, let's say, like Nazi sure. Germany. Or, or, sure. or, or, so it doesn't seem to be religious fundamentalism per se that's crucial to your argument. No, it's not. I mean, so that just to close the loop on that, the only reason why I would focus on religion in particular there is that religion is the only language game wherein fundamentalism and, and dogmatism, dogmatism is not a pejorative concept. Dogma is a good word, in, specifically within Catholicism. And the notion that you must believe things on faith, that is in the absence of compelling evidence that would otherwise cause a rational person to believe it, that in a religious context is considered a feature, not a bug. Elsewhere, we recognize it to be a bug, and that's, that's why the, the unique okay, so, focus on religion. So, okay, so, so, so it, all right, so is it reasonable to assume that the associate, 
We've already established, at least in principle, that there's an association between the totalitarian regimes, let's say. And, dog, and dogmatism, yeah. And the dogmatism that characterizes religious belief. Yeah. What do you think, although at least in principle, the, the secularist totalitarian states and the religious fundamentalist totalitarian states do differ in one important regard, which is that the religious types ground their axioms in God and the secular totalitarian types don't. And so there's got to be something about totalitarianism per se that's independent of, that's associated with religious belief in the manner that you just described, but that's not particularly associated with the belief in God. There's something that makes them, that's a commonality between them. And so do you have any sense of what that might be? Well, I I would, I I think one has to acknowledge that there's something uniquely pernicious, at least, Potentially about religious beliefs because they, they have the, the otherworldly variable, the supernatural variable, the you're going to get everything you want after you die, so this life doesn't matter issue. That, right. that, that allows for a kind of misbehavior that is especially... Okay, okay. So, so it seems that, so that the claim would be that if you, if you put forward axiomatically your claim that God exists, then you can use that claim to justify whatever arbitrary atrocities your system might throw off. Yeah, I guess okay. the only point I was making there is that not all dogmas are created equal. I mean, some dogmas are, on their face, more dangerous and more divisive. You know, right, you, but, but what I'm curious about specifically is, because it seems to me that the dogmas of the USSR and the dogmas of Nazi Germany were as pernicious as any religious dog, dogmas, and, and they may also share important features with yeah. pernicious religious oh, dogmas, yeah. but it isn't yeah. clear to me from your perspective what those commonalities would be. Well, so, I mean, in some ways you're recapitulating an argument I've made, and this is an argument that I would make against you were you to claim, as you've, you have elsewhere, that, that atheism is responsible for the greatest atrocities of the 20th century. The idea that Stalinism and Nazism and fascism were expressions of atheism simply doesn't make any sense. I mean, in the case of fascism and, and Nazism, it doesn't make any sense because the, the fascists and the Nazis, by and large, were not even atheists. I mean, Hitler wasn't an atheist, and he was talking about executing a divine plan, and he got lots of support from the churches, and the Vatican did nothing to stop him, and fascism, as you know, uh, coexisted quite happily with Catholicism in Croatia and Portugal and Spain and Italy. So, but even in the case of Stalin, what was so wrong with that situation was were all of the ways in which it so resembled a religion. You had a personality cult, you had dogmatism uh, that uh, held sway to a point where apostasy and blasphemy were killing offenses. You know, the, the people who, who, who didn't toe the line were eradicated. And, you know, so, and North, so to, to take a more modern example, North Korea is a religious cult. It just doesn't happen to be a, a one that is focused on the next life or, or you know, supernatural claims of, so what of would magic. Be defi- okay, so what would be the defining characteristics of a religious totalitarian movement that would make it different from a non-religious totalitarian movement? Well, I mean, it's just, because they, there's aspects they, that they, are they, similar. They, yeah, they may, yeah, they're very similar. I mean, the, the problem is dogmatism. The overarching problem is believing things strongly on bad evidence. And the reason why dogmatism is so dangerous is that it doesn't allow us to revise our bad ideas in real time through conversation. It is, it, dogmas have to be enforced by force or the threat of force. Because the moment someone has a better idea, 
you have to shut it down in order to preserve your dogmas. Okay, okay. So, so the commonality seems to be something like claims of absolute truth at some level that can't be, that you're no longer yeah. allowed to discuss. Yeah. Okay, and so, okay, so that's another point of agreement. One of the things that was really shocking to me, I would say, was the, the, my reading of what was originally Jane Goodall's discovery about chimp behavior, you know, because there was this idea that was really rooted in Rousseauian thinking that the reason that people committed atrocities in the service of their group identity, let's say their tribal identity, was because culture had corrupted us. So it was a uniquely human thing. But then, of course, Goodall showed in the 1970s that the chimps at Gombe yep. would go on raiding parties, right? And, and so there'd be like four or five adolescent chimps, usually male, sometimes with a female in there. They would patrol the borders of their territory. If they found an interloper on the border, near the border, from another troop, even if it was a member of their troop that had emigrated, so to speak, and that, mm. they, that they had had some history with, they would tear them to pieces. And of course, that was shocking to Goodall, but, but then that's been noted repeatedly in other forms of chimp behavior. So, see, I've been really interested in the commission of atrocity in the service of belief. And it's tempting to pin that, say, on, on dogma and then to associate that with religious dogma. I think that's all tempting. But the fact that chimps do it shows that it can't be a consequence of something like religious belief, unless you're willing to say that the reason that chimps commit atrocity in the service of their troop and their territory is because chimps are religious. And so they're not religious and they don't really hold a secular totalitarian viewpoint, but they act out, they still act out the, the atrocity element that's characteristic of human behavior. And so to me, that makes the problem deeper than one of mere, let's say, surface statements, surface statements about yeah, yeah. metaphysics. Well, the, I mean, the, obviously the problem of primate aggression, which we've inherited along with the chimps, is deeper or at least different than the problem of religious violence or, or totalitarian uh, okay. po political structures that, that okay, get the worst out of people. So, uh, I mean, we have, we have these primate capacities that we have to correct for, and we're busily trying to correct for almost everything that we've been evolved to do. I mean, we're not, we, you know, we, we don't like the state of nature for good reason, and virtually everything that's good about human life is born of our... I would argue culture-based and, and you know highly intelligent and necessary effort to to mitigate what is in fact natural for us and natural. I mean, there's nothing more natural than tribal violence, which of the sort that you're okay. you're okay. describing okay. in chimps. Okay, so so then that it also seems like we agree that the the core element of tribal alliance, which would have its roots, say, in in the chimpanzee proclivity to, or its analog in the chimpanzee proclivity to identify with the dominance hierarchy of the troop mm. is something that's a source of the proclivity for human social aggression, independent of any obvious religious substrate. So there are other yeah. reasons for group belief and the commission of atrocity that can't be directly attributed to, to religious dogma. Yeah, but, but I mean, and what most worries me about religion, I would say, that obviously religion can channel these primate urges in unhappy ways. So you, you can get tribal violence that gets amplified by religious dogmatism, and that should trouble everyone. But it's not unique to religion. It's also nationalism, and it's racism, and it's all other kinds of dogmatism. But 
what most worries me are those cases where clearly good people who are not necessarily captured by tribalism per se are doing the unthinkable based purely on religious doctrines that they believe wholeheartedly with, without good evidence. Now, I agree that two things you want to avoid are religious fundamentalism and moral relativism. I mean, we talk about that on the show all the time. But those are just two of an infinite number of subjective philosophies that we want to avoid. What's driving you is that you want to ground a structure of ethics in something solid, says Peterson to Harris. Well, he could have said that to me, too, and it would have been totally applicable, because that's exactly what we're trying to do on this show, to ground a structure of ethics in something solid. So, just how do we ground a structure of ethics in something solid? Well, in discussing any code of ethics or morality that would prevent humanity from falling into the traps of religious fundamentalism and moral relativism, you can't just talk about ethics in a vacuum that's just about ethics. And in the hierarchy of philosophy, ethics is the third branch. And all ethical codes are based on the first two branches of philosophy, metaphysics and epistemology. It is those principles that offer the foundation for the ethical code. And that's where all of the real debate really exists. You'll often find that people might share ethics that sound very similar, and then when they get together and they find out why they agree on those ethics, boy, those differences can be as wide as, well, believing in religion or not. So to review quickly, I mean, this is the fastest philosophy lesson you'll ever get, but philosophy essentially consists of five branches. And I have to bring this up because none of the participants ever talk about this. And I think to inject this into the conversation will give you some idea of where I'm coming from. So you've got philosophy with essentially five branches, and it's in the following hierarchy of structure, to use that term that Peterson likes so much, hierarchy. And it's metaphysics, epistemology, ethics, politics, and aesthetics. All of these branches of philosophy relate to human knowledge about the outside world, not to that world itself per se. That's where people get tripped up so often. And in acquiring that knowledge, we arrive at the values necessary to minimize suffering and to maximize our quality of life, as, as they might say. Now, metaphysics, you have a choice. You can either choose to side with reality or some form of non-reality, which could include the supernatural or subjectivism, intrinsicism, or just plain old guessing what's, how something works. I mean, reality is the only possible standard of truth, since in order for anything to be true, it has to correspond to reality. I mean, what else is there? In this regard, this is important. All facts are true, but facts are not truth. Two different things. Now, of course, reality doesn't present itself as the self-evident. We determine what is real through the second branch of philosophy, and that's epistemology. And that speaks to the whole issue of reason. You can either operate on the basis of reason or on a whole host of other bases, including faith, intrinsicism, subjectivism, Yes, moral relativism, religious fundamentalism, there's all kinds. 
Then we get to ethics. And you here again, you have a choice. You either side with rational self-interest or you choose with sacrificing to the interests of others. And in politics, the issue is either consent or force and coercion. Now, aesthetics, the fifth branch. I've been thinking about this one a lot, and I'm starting to, to view it as the representative branch of philosophy. It deals with representation of the values that you outline in the previous branches. I mean, representation of values in art, in culture, in entertainment, and most importantly, in the context of these kinds of discussions, in the stories that embody the chosen values. Now, as I said, all facts are true, but facts alone are not truth. The expression of truth is not a mere listing of facts. You have to connect the dots between the very few relevant facts, and you must dismiss all of the non-relevant facts, which will be infinite in number, and you have to know how to do that. And the question here arises whether this is best done by simply directly connecting the dots between facts in a very scholarly and disciplined manner and relating them that way as you might in front of a class, say, in a university, or by employing those facts in a story that makes them relevant to the human experience. And among those stories are, of course, the religious ones around which entire cultures are based. Now, which of these two methods of communicating do I prefer? I like both of them, to be frank with you. <laughs> and it's, for me, it's not an either or. I say do them both. Now, this is interesting. Among all of the facts that we must consider, one of those facts is the fact of violence, which they just talked about. There is nothing more natural than tribal violence, said Harris. And he's quite right. What most worries me is where clearly good people, not captured by tribalism, are doing the unthinkable based purely on religious doctrines that they believe in wholeheartedly, he concludes. Well, I've got news for him. All clearly good people are fully capable of incredibly violent actions if the circumstances demand it. You know, I've often wondered, I don't know if you've thought about this yourself, you under, ever wonder what you're capable of doing if you were put in a corner and you had to defend your children against some attacker or against robbery or, or some issue of stress where you have to resolve it with force? You might be surprised by what you're capable of doing. Violence and force are not an issue in and of themselves. The issue is the justification for the use of that force found this fascinating quote from, of all things, a book about <laughs> the fifth level of philosophy aesthetics, because it was about cinema. The name of this book was Savage Cinema, published by Bounty Books in 1975 and written by Rick Trader Whitcomb. And that book is just a review and analysis of the violence in popular film, which at that time included works like, you know, Clockwork Orange and all the Clint Eastwood movies, and going back to Humphrey Bogart and, and James Cagney and all the earlier movies that really established their reputations on the basis of the, a lot of the violence that occurred within them. But the author begins his book with a stunning insight to the nature of violence. Quote, the poles of mental energy are dynamism versus passivity, male versus female, plus versus minus, yin versus yang, according to your terminology. Now, aggression 
is part of the natural dynamism of mind. Children exhibit it without inhibition, as do animals. Thus, competition is as natural an instinct as is cooperation. Aggression becomes violence when it is no longer linked to an exploratory function. Violence is aggression turned into destructiveness by frustration or fear, aggression displaced from its real object, the self, back onto the world, end quote. Now, I find this to be a truly profound insight to an extraordinarily deep subject, one that should serve as comfort to all those who are overly concerned about our so-called violent society. I mean, all societies are violent. What makes one society different from another is in how that force or violence is being used or tolerated, whether it is being used justly to defend and protect life, liberty, and property, which is what free societies do, or whether it is being used unjustly to destroy life, liberty, and property, which is what totalitarian societies do. Fundamentalism, generally not just religious, secular fundamentalism, is also a problem, noted Peterson. And he's right. There has to be something about totalitarianism per se, he said, that's independent of religious belief since there are secular totalitarian regimes as well as religious ones. What might that be, he asks. Well, if it was me answering that question, the answer would be pretty straightforward. What they all share in common is irrationality. A rejection of reality and reason at the most fundamental level. And yet, Peterson does not think that this is a sufficient means to resolve the dilemma of religious fundamentalism and moral relativism. Once you grant that, and this is, I mean, this is where you, there's, a, there's a tension between, you know, how we pursue the same goals. Like, you know, as we've just established, we have many of the same goals. But insofar as you make religion look palatable, insofar as you suggest to your audience that they can they can have their religious cake and eat it too they can they can have their reason they can have their respect for science they can have a 21st century worldview but they can also hold on to everything they love in christianity or fear to lose and it's, it's undoubtedly mostly christianity but but whatever any religion my concern is that it keeps us shackled to these iron age philosophies and these Iron Age conversations where we should be having a 21st century conversation about everything, ethics included. Okay, okay, so... Wait, before, before you move on, I, I, I want to get each of you to clarify something so yep. that we know yep. where, where yep. we are. So, Sam, you said the problem here is that the dogma can't be updated, right? That slavery is with us permanently because it's written into the dogma. But clearly, most of the traditions in which it's written into the holy book don't practice slavery, and the people who, uh, who adhere to these belief systems wouldn't defend slavery. So clearly there is the capacity for an update mechanism. Well, no, but n not really. I mean, they've been forced, they've had it beaten out of them, right? I mean, that we, we fought a civil war in the U.S. to get rid of slavery. But it just, was we, Christians who abolished slavery in England, though? There, there were Christians on either side of everything. I mean, there's, there's no one else to no, do the job. Right, well, but, but well, that's yeah, the update but, but wait mechanism. Wait a minute, wait a minute. <laughs> yeah. 
but so, so yes, they're, they're, but it was specifically Christians who were using their Christian belief as a justification for yes, eradicating but slavery. The, the problem was they were actually on the losing side of a theological argument, and and it would be much better, I think you would agree, if one of the Ten Commandments had been "Don't keep slaves." The problem is, is that doors leading out of this kind of fundamentalism don't open from the inside. They get bashed open from the outside. And it's, it's, it's humanism and it's secularism and it's scientific rationality that has exerted such pressure, such winnowing pressure on Christianity, you know, the, now for multiple centuries, that that's why we're not encountering the Christians of the 14th century on a daily basis. I mean, we, and we are essentially encountering Muslims of the 14th century. Uh, not only in the Middle East, but in our own societies, in, in, in terms of their intuitions about how we should all live, right? I mean, the fact that 0% of UK Muslims think homosexuality is acceptable, right? 0%, I mean, you, there's almost no question you can come up with where we could poll this, uh, this, this society and say, you know, I mean, do you think that, that the, you know, a lizard king is, is living in the Oval Office, you know, that... Uh, <laughs> You, you, you never get a 0% response to any poll question, right? Uh, but if you ask Muslims on the streets of London, is homosexuality morally acceptable? Apparently, you can find no one who says it is. Uh, that's shocking, and it's not an accident, right? And it would be much easier if the book actually said, actually, you, know, you can love anyone you want, and you know, it's, uh, it's not a problem. You're listening to Just Right, broadcasting around the world and online. Now, as I pointed out in the opening segment of our show today, all facts are true, but facts alone are not truth. And among all of the facts that we must consider, one of those facts is the fact of slavery. You know, that whole part of the discussion we just heard was, I think, a little bit out of context particularly with the talk about slavery and what should have been in the holy book or on the tablets with the 10 plus 1 commandments. I would suggest that slavery was not a consequence of religious belief. Religious beliefs regarding slavery were a consequence of the status of slavery itself. Slavery was an economic, I mean, we've, we've talked about this on the show in great detail in the past. Slavery was an economic necessity. In a society that is still in transition between barter and open market trading and where, you know, countries are still at war and nothing is stable and where production depends on some form of property, quote-unquote, ownership, which eluded most people, those who rose on the hierarchy of production, to use Peterson's terms, would find themselves dealing with the labor side of production in the absence of a free labor market that didn't exist in the sense we think today. And as we've elaborated on many previous shows, slavery is the condition that arises in the absence of what we now broadly know as the condition of capitalism. And this is the point. Capitalism and economic forces are what wiped out slavery but only where capitalism was permitted to dominate, as it was in the States. And throughout the world, slavery has adopted many forms, and as we also discussed, included social structures where even slaves could own slaves. Often began with being in debt, you know? The problem, though, with being a slave was that you could only, at best, achieve a social status. And that status was in contrast 
to whatever quote-unquote rights the citizens or non-slaves of the society we're talking about possessed. For example, our show opener today came from the movie Ben-Hur, which portrayed its main character as a slave, always to be found at the end of a whip. But that was not the usual common condition under which most slaves would find themselves throughout history. It was just part of the social structure. It's not for nothing that even today, under conditions of so-called free labor, meaning free from the government or state telling you who to work for and when, people who are freely employed by an employer still often describe themselves as slaves to their jobs or to their professions. And as I have already mentioned on past shows, my own parents, who were born in Hungary, were born under a condition of what we would describe as serfdom, just one step removed from slavery. Nobody whipped them or chained them, and they lived otherwise normal lives in the context of their time and society. But they were slaves to their status, something they did not escape from until coming to Canada. Now, Sam Harris made the observation that once you make religion palatable by suggesting you can have your religious cake and eat it too, you can have your reason, respect for science, but you can still hold on to your faith and your religion, he suggested that it keeps us shackled to these Iron Age philosophies. But is that really so? Science and religion are two different contexts entirely, and I think that's part of the whole problem between the two debaters, and I'll attempt to reconcile those two by once again citing a passage from Scottish philosopher John McMurray's book titled, of all things, Reason and Emotion, published in 1932. Quote, Suppose we were courageously to throw religion overboard and put our faith wholeheartedly in science. What would be the result? Just this we should have destroyed the support upon which science rests. We should have abandoned science itself. Science can be applied for good or for evil purposes, for destruction or for construction, to minister to human greed and selfishness or to human love and sympathy. The point is this. We cannot put our trust in science for a very simple reason. Science is concerned with facts and with the laws that govern facts. It is completely unbiased, unemotional, disinterested. It has no purpose except to understand facts. And you'll find that Peterson, this is one of his difficulties in dealing with turning facts into values. What we do with our knowledge that science creates is not the business of science, says McMurray. Science has nothing to do with good or evil with the satisfaction of human desires. It has nothing to do with action, because it must be completely disinterested, and action cannot be disinterested. Action depends on what we want, on our choice of what is most worth doing. A faith, quote-unquote, was a principle of valuation by means of which a man decided what is worthwhile and what is not. If what we want is evil or stupid or selfish, science will prove disastrous. If our wants are wise and high-minded, it will be a boon. Science itself is utterly indifferent. End quote. Now bear in mind that John McMurray, whose ideas we've examined in some detail on past shows, would argue that all of the world's religions remain immature and have yet to evolve into anything real. He acknowledges that. But he sees a utility in religion. For McMurray, faith is not about some blind belief in a dogma that can't be reconciled with reality, but quite the contrary. Quote, 
A faith is not a thing that we can force upon ourselves or accept ready-made. Well, that kills a lot of the discussion, doesn't it? It must be really credible. That is the first thing. It must make direct and obvious contact with the circumstances of our daily life. That is the second. And third is the most important of all. It must draw to itself the whole current of emotional life and release it in a flood of spontaneous and joyful activity. It must make us believe in life, believe in living, and believe in our living selves. And the faith we have lived by hitherto has failed us. That is why we are in a dilemma." End quote. Now, I would strongly recommend to the participants in this debate all of the books by John McMurray that I know of in this regard because I can't think of any other writer or philosopher who ever approached philosophy and religion in the precise way he did. I've referenced many of those books on previous shows, and they include Freedom in the Modern World, Reason and Emotion, Conditions of Freedom, The Self as Agent, Persons in Relation, and Interpreting the Universe. Amazing books, actually. I honestly believe, quote-unquote, that many of the answers, though not necessarily any big solutions, that the participants are seeking are sitting right there in the works of John McMurray. Now, on the topic of making religion look palatable, as Sam Harris accused Peterson of doing, I've had a similar complaint expressed against me from none other than Robert Vaughn. He always gets a bit uncomfortable with me when I suggest simply that, you know, God is the name we give to the Supreme Being. He accepts my logic when I explain that what I mean by the Supreme Being is the being of all as opposed to non-being and to the eternal fact of existence and establishing all of those laws we have to quote-unquote obey. But he doesn't particularly like my acceptance of a God concept in my description of any such process. Which brings us to the bottom line. You say you believe in God. You have been... No, I say I act as if he exists. You say what? I say I act as if he exists, okay. which so, is a much more precise claim. Okay, so, so then what, what... But in this case, what... So you act as though God exists. Yep. And in addition, I've heard you say that I act as though God exists, that I'm, I can't really well, be so an atheist. Far, so far, it seems yeah, that. Right, yeah. We'll but, see. But the night is young. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so in that sense, I'm not really an atheist. I've, I've heard you say this. So that, to, well, some of you is. Well, in, if I were really an atheist, I would be far more poorly behaved than in fact I am. Right? I would be like Raskolnikov committing murders and, and assuming there was nothing wrong with more, it. Yeah. It would be more likely, yes. Yeah, okay. Yeah. The well, temptations laid open to Raskolnikov would be more at hand. What is the God that you act as though he, she, it exists? And what is the, what, what is the God-shaped thing I must have in my life to prevent me from being a, quote, real atheist? Well, I'm going to tell you some of the things that I mean by God. Okay. Uh-oh. Uh, we, we do have to get the question. Maybe we're going to do this tomorrow. Yeah, maybe this is where right. we, we start. Oh, God. Well, that was a pretty resounding well, maybe that's, no. It so. seems like that constitutes an audience question, wouldn't you say? All right. I tell you what. I tell you what. Let's... Yeah. Um,
Okay, well, I'm, I'm, I'm going to read some things that I wrote because it's so complicated that I'm not sure that I can just spin it off the top of my head. So, God is how we imaginatively and collectively represent the existence and action of consciousness across time. As the most real aspects of existence manifest themselves across the longest of time frames, but are not necessarily apprehensible as objects in the here and now. So what that means in some sense is that you have conceptions of reality built into your biological and metaphysical structure that are a consequence of processes of evolution that, that occurred over unbelievably vast expanses of time and that structure your perception of reality in ways that it wouldn't be structured if you only lived for the amount of time that you're going to live. And that's also part of the problem of deriving values from facts, because you're evanescent and, and you can't derive the right values from the facts that port portray themselves to you in your lifespan, which is why you have a biological structure that's like 3.5 billion years old. So God is that which eternally dies and is reborn in the pursuit of higher being and truth. That's a fundamental element of hero mythology. God is the highest value in the hierarchy of values. That's another way of looking at it. God is what calls and what responds in the eternal call to adventure. God is the voice of conscience. God is the source of judgment and mercy and guilt. God is the future to which we make sacrifices and something akin to the transcendental repository of reputation. Here's a cool one if you're an evolutionary biologist. God... <laughs> God, God is that which selects among men in the eternal hierarchy of men. So, you know, men arrange themselves into hierarchies and then men rise in the hierarchy. And there's principles that are important that determine the probability of their rise. And those principles aren't tyrannical power. They're something like the ability to articulate truth and the ability to be competent and the ability to make appropriate moral judgments. And if you can do that in a given situation, then all the other men will vote you up the hierarchy, so to speak, and that will radically increase your reproductive fitness. And the operation of that process across long expanses of time looks to me like it's codified in something like the notion of God the Father. It's also the same thing that makes women, men attractive to women. Because women peel off the top of the male hierarchy. And the question is, what should be at the top of the hierarchy? And the answer right now is tyranny as part of the patriarchy. But the real answer is something more like the ability to use truthful speech in the service of, let's say, well-being. And so that's, that's something that operates across tremendous expanses of time. And it plays a role in the selection for survival itself, which makes it a fundamental reality. So I, I was not hearing in that list of attributes a God who could care if anyone masturbated. Uh, I was not hearing a God who... Depends on what else is stopping you from doing, Sam. Uh, well, I, sorry, I, I missed that. Wait, wait, wait. I said it depends on what else it's stopping you from doing. Well, okay, so it's, it's yeah, important to live. It's, it's important to do something other than masturbate. Yes. Uh, yes, which, is, which, which actually yeah. constitutes a problem yeah, is, for many which, people. Which is harder than it sounds. Yeah. yeah. Uh, The resurrection of Jesus is clearly an important question, but you've raised a much bigger and more pressing question for the audience, which is whether or not God cares whether they masturbate. So <laughs> I actually think if we pursue that answer, that we will actually wrap this up in a way that... Um, you you yes. want to end this on masturbation? Uh, 
I think we owe it to them okay. too. Okay. So, give me a little leash. The floor is yours. Okay, great. <laughs> How did I end up here? All right. So here's here's the question. Let's just figure out if we can determine why God might care if you masturbate. Right. So let's suppose that we have a story, a heuristic of some kind that stands in for something. And the story is, God is watching, he sees you always, he doesn't want you masturbating, so don't you dare. What happens? What happens? Yeah. Uh, well, it's, uh, it's a rather ineffectual you sure? idea. Yeah. Well, I mean, you don't think that story prevented I, I th- I think, lots of people from masturbating? Well, well, no, but I think the reality was was that you had people masturbating and feeling terrible about it, and you had a whole layer of sexual neurosis that got grafted on to human psychology unnecessarily. Okay, I mean, so, Christianity has a certain typology so, of sexual hang-uppery, which, which you know, the, the tantrics don't have. So if I understand you correctly, you are agreeing that a certain amount certain number of people will yeah. have masturbated. Some, have some of them bad, joined the priesthood and it. raped little boys. I mean, that's all no, no, of a piece. Let's there. Let's yeah. stick with the, the topic. The, the taboos around masturbation, the taboos around uh, sexuality prior to marriage, the taboo around divorce, all of the t- taboo around out-of-wedlock birth, the, the ideal of celibacy in the priesthood, all of that is, a, is a, just a diabolical machine of needless sexual conflict and misery. No, hold, hold on, hold that, on, hold on. And, but, yes, okay. You have so to take I, I Diabolica out of there. How's, I, the, how's the whole flood of pornography thing working out for okay. you? So, if we can agree that this makes sense, actually, as a fitness-enhancing adaptation, that this story would result in people behaving in a way that might result in them marrying early, might result in them reproducing earlier than they would otherwise... Right? Then we can understand it as mechanistic, and we can understand what you said, that you know, maybe God would care about whether or not people masturbate because God is a metaphor for some set of stories that gets you to behave in an adaptive fashion. But the religious story itself makes some kind of sense if you adhere to it in a manner that you are obligated and have no tools with which to question it, then you will miss the fact that at this moment you might want to throw that story but out. But the problem is it doesn't make sense, and this is, this is a problem with these heuristics in general, it doesn't make sense for the right reason, and that's why it's not a, a reliable guide given other changes in the world. But with everything changing, you want to be making sense for the right reason. You don't want it like so. Useful fictions have to be retired at a certain point. Useful truths stay true. I mean, if you're, because they're based on your engagement with reality. And so, to take your point about pornography, which I think is totally valid, you we, you could have a completely rational conversation in terms of human psychology and sociology and what you want society to look like about the corrosive nature of pornography. Right? That's not. You don't have to be a Victorian. Uh, prude to worry that there might be something wrong with the infinite availability of pornography to 13-year-olds and above, right? I mean, that's, that's, I don't know what, what generation of human beings we're raising in the current environment. It's, it's you know, it's qu- quite worrisome, actually. But, again, you don't have to invoke mythology 
to do that. And I would say the temptation to invoke mythology is say, well, you actually, you know, so how do you do it? Poseidon really gets pissed off when you masturbate. How do you how do you do it? How do you do it? You, you talk, like, we don't about, have you talk a mechanism. About the effects, for, you talk we have about no the, mechanism for controlling. Talk about that the effects the on human relationships and your own mind and your own intention and the way you view other people. Sam, and that barely works for sex ed. It barely works for condom education. Well, what was it that? Barely works. Like those sorts of educational interventions to stop that kind of fundamental behavior have very little effect. Well, people aren't nearly as as amenable to behavioral changes as a consequence of rational educational interventions as you might hope. Wow, what a topic to end on, right? <laughs> oh, boy. You know, throughout the whole part of that last conversation about pornography, I was imagining what Professor Gad Saad might have said were he sitting in on that panel. Given what we just covered from his work last week on the show, to briefly summarize the whole issue on pornography from his book, The Consuming Instinct, Quote, detractors of pornography have repeatedly argued that pornography has adverse effects both on individuals and the society at large. As a matter of fact, for those who count on facts, for both sexes, a positive correlation was found between the amount of hardcore pornography that was consumed and the extent of the beneficial effects. And here he refers to sex life attitudes towards sex, perceptions and attitude towards individuals of the opposite sex, life in general and overall, end quote. And that's just part of the analysis he did that we covered. If you want to hear the rest of it, check in on our show last week. But if facts matter... That's just one relating to the pornography issue. Now, Jordan Peterson's description, not a definition, I have to point out, of, quote, just some of the things he believes about God, I mean, that could have gone on endlessly. <laughs> you know, God is that which eternally dies and is reborn in the pursuit of higher being and truth. God is the highest value in the hierarchy of values. God is the conscience and source of judgment and mercy and guilt. God is the future to which we make sacrifices. God is that which selects among men the eternal hierarchy of men. God is the ability to use truthful speech. And, and of course, God cares about whether you masturbate or not, apparently. Oh, <laughs> but... These are, that's just a description. He could have gone on forever. Maybe he should have been asked the question, what isn't God? That might have been shorter. But since God is everywhere and exists in all things according to the deity version and to some secular versions, then anything and everything is God, quote-unquote, in some respect. Now, just as Peterson suggested, <laughs> I found I really related to this. Just as Peterson suggested that both he and Sam Harris act as if there were a God, I've been told on many occasions by people who know me and know my beliefs that I am not an atheist. And, you know, these people know that I don't believe in deities. <laughs> I recall one afternoon at the Crosswords television station network where I used to appear regularly as a guest with Christine Williams, who, who, by the way, has also been a guest on this show, when we were sitting in the green room just before TV taping of a talk show there. So there I am, sitting in the station's green room, the waiting area for guests before we go on air, and Christine and one of the other guests on the show, who appeared to be a minister of some religious denomination, we're having a lively discussion that was quite disparaging of atheists, <laughs> if I can put it that way. So as I'm sitting there listening to their discussion, 
and I'm hearing all this bad talk about atheists, I just sat there and I'm going, <coughs> hello, um, you know, I'm sitting here in the room along with you, one of those nasty atheists. <laughs> well, Christine looks over at me and utterly dismissed my, op my, my objection by saying, oh, we don't think of you as an atheist, and just carried on her conversation as though I wasn't there again. <laughs> And she understands where I'm coming from in terms of my own personal beliefs. I came to realize over time that what I was actually being told when people tell me that was that I'm a person who holds that there is an objective right and wrong and a good and evil, which I do despite my rejection of deity. And that's a subject for a whole other show. But you see, I'm not an atheist, even in the eyes of most religious people who know me, and that's fine by me. And because funnily enough, but for totally different reasons, I also don't go around calling myself an atheist, not in a general conversation, which is a label that essentially defines someone in terms of something that they are not. And I'm not a believer in deity, but I don't go around listing all the things I don't believe in. And, you know, I don't believe in this. I don't believe in that. That's not how you define yourself. And, of course, when I would argue that, quote-unquote, God is the name we give to existence itself, the supreme being, I say it that way to improve the odds that I will not be misunderstood to mean that I believe that God is the supreme being or even a supreme being among a few. Not a deity. And unfortunately, many people on both sides of this belief in God debate usually mean a supreme being, meaning a deity. And deities, by definition, are supernatural concepts. And that, of course, is what I suppose legitimizes both Robert's criticism of me and Sam Harris's criticism of Peterson. So, define or be defined. The supreme being in this context is only meaningful against its opposite, non-being. Ain't no such thing as nothing, honey, because if there were, wouldn't that be something? It sure would. Non-existence is something that applies only to physical entities and physical identities and processes. People can cease to exist, but existence itself is eternal. Interestingly enough, one of the same words that is used to describe God. Life can cease to exist, but existence will continue as will our show as we wrap up for this week. So join us again next week when we will continue our journey in the right direction. And until then, be right, stay right, do right, act right, think right, and be right back here. We'll see you then. Fade into color, color into black and white. Under the bedclothes, everything will be all right. Colonel. Mm-hmm. Colonel. What are you doing? I was asking about a new roof. I look into it. Death! Hey! I didn't know you went in for astrology. I've heard Hitler's a big believer. Mm-hmm. And Goering and Himmler. And now Klink, Germany's men of destiny. <laughs> you all take from the same fellow, sir? Oh, Hogan. Be cheaper, you get a group rate. Hey, form a carpool, too. Save on gas. <laughs> Colonel Hogan! I will not stand for any of your insubordination. <laughs> and stop looking at my chart. Well, I didn't mean to pry, sir. I was just trying to see if there are any roof repairs in your future. <laughs> Very cranky.
and his horoscope said he was going to have a good week. He takes that very seriously. Every night he goes to his astrologer. He told him that he might be promoted to general. Clink the general? Sure, and then there's the one about the three bears. Oh, Colonel Clink really believes in astrologers and fortune tellers. He said that some people are gifted, that they have a sixth sense. Yeah, I know how he feels. I used to be that way about fortune cookies right up to my fourth birthday. <laughs>